Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. Our scripture reading today is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We read the verses 7 through 13. Let us hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you, because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, faithfulness is becoming increasingly rare in our society today. Many people today are simply not very faithful. Husbands are not faithful to their wives. Wives are not faithful to their husbands. Sometimes parents are not faithful to their children or children to their parents or employees to their employers and vice versa. This lack of faithfulness, sadly, is also evident in the church of Jesus Christ. Many once solid churches today are simply not faithful anymore. They've compromised with the world. They have adopted the world's values, the world's music, the world's priorities and the world's methods. And what is more, some have abandoned belief in certain cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, such as the authority, the clarity, and the sufficiency of Scripture and the doctrine of justification by faith alone, just to name a few. A lack of faithfulness was also a problem in the church in the first century A.D. Just like today, many churches back then compromised with the world or with false teachers, as we've seen several times in this series on the seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. But there was one exception to this, and it was the church at Philadelphia. This is not talking here about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, of course, but Philadelphia in Asia Minor. This Philadelphia was a small city located about 25 miles southeast of Sardis, on an important trade route. 
Although its origins are a bit obscure, it was apparently founded during the early 2nd century BC. The name of the city was bestowed by its founder, King Eumenes II of Pergamos, and that was in honor of his brother, Attalus II. Attalus loved his brother and was very loyal to him. And to commemorate and immortalize this love, Eumenes named the city Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. Now in this city was a church of Jesus Christ. We don't know a lot about this church. We don't know who founded it or when or how large, how small it was. We don't know much about it at all. But one thing we do know, it was a very faithful church. And for that reason, like the church at Smyrna, this church received no word of rebuke from the Lord Jesus Christ, only words of encouragement. Now, to be sure, this church was not perfect. No church is ever perfect. But with all of her weaknesses and all of her shortcomings, the church at Philadelphia pleased her king, the Lord Jesus. Perhaps for that reason, this was the only church in Asia Minor that survived into the modern age, although there's very little left of true Christianity there today. Well, with these thoughts in mind and God's help, let's consider this letter under the theme, Christ's Letter to a Faithful Church. And we'll develop this theme under three headings. First of all, four headings rather, the commendation he offers. Secondly, the door he opens. Thirdly, the vindication he promises. And fourthly, the encouragement he provides. Christ's letter to the church at Philadelphia begins, as does all of his letters, with an introduction of himself. Only this introduction is unique. Our Lord does not introduce himself as a mere man, Jesus from Nazareth, but rather as God. And specifically, he says three things about himself. First of all, he says he is holy. These things says he who is holy, our text says. Now the word holy means set apart. When Christ says that he is holy, he means he is set apart by God from all other men as the Messiah, the anointed one, who is to be the prophet, the prophet, the priest, and the king of his people, who would save his people from their sins. But he is also separate from all other men. All men are sinners, but he is not. He is absolutely holy because he is divine. He is co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He's also true. Now that could have two possible meanings. It could mean true in the sense of real or genuine. And if that's the meaning, then Christ is saying that, that he is the true Messiah as opposed to the false Messiah as the Jews claimed. But it could also mean true in the sense of reliable or dependable. And if that's the meaning, then Christ is saying that he can be counted on to care for and to provide for his church, including this church of Philadelphia. Thirdly, he says he has the key of David. Now, a key is a symbol of authority and control. If I have the key to your house, that means I have control over it. I can enter it whenever I please, and I can decide who may and who may not enter it. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus said that he has the keys of death and Hades. And by that he meant he has control over death and over eternal life. But here, Christ says he has the key of David. 
And by that he means he has complete authority to admit or prohibit entrance into the city of David, which is a metaphor for the kingdom of heaven and ultimately the new Jerusalem. To reinforce this, he adds that he is the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. In other words, he decides who is in and who's out, who goes to heaven and who does not. Now, these words are taken from the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 22, uh, verses 20 to 25. And there Isaiah speaks of a man named Eliakim, who was one of the three delegates sent to negotiate for the kingdom of Judah with the king of Assyria. We can read about that in 2 Kings 18. Eliakim was chosen because of the honorable place that he occupied as head over King Hezekiah's household. So God here presents Eliakim to Isaiah as a type of Christ to whom God will commit the government of his people. In fact, in words similar to our text, God says that he would lay on him the key of the house of David. And he goes on to add, So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. And so what was true for Eliakim hundreds of years beforehand was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The point is, Christ introduces himself in language that can only be used of God. And in that way, he asserts his claim to be divine, to be co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Well, as God, Christ says several things, positive things, about this church. First of all, he acknowledges that they have a little strength. Now, some interpret that negatively to mean they had little strength, meaning they did not have very much strength at all. But it's perhaps better to interpret this positively, to mean that although they were weak, they still had a little strength. Now, why was this church so weak? We don't know. Maybe they were small in number. Maybe their members were drawn from the lower classes of society and therefore were not very influential. Perhaps their witness was not bearing much fruit, or perhaps they were being persecuted. We don't know. All we know is what our Lord says here. It was weak. But if we interpret this positively, then we can also say that they still had some strength left. And they were willing to use that strength in order to grow the church and the kingdom of Christ. And Christ acknowledges them for this. Secondly, he acknowledges that they have kept his word. That means they did not, as so many churches do today, they did not compromise on his word or make it more palatable to a contemporary audience. They maintained his word in its entirety. They believed what it taught, and they obeyed what it commanded, no matter what the cost. Thirdly, he acknowledges that they did not deny his name. And from this it seems likely that the believers in Philadelphia were under considerable pressure to deny that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Most likely, most of this pressure came from the Jewish community there. For the Jews hated Christ, and they did everything in their power to prevent people from coming to faith in him, including the members of the church at Philadelphia. But the church refused to give in to this. 
Despite fierce opposition, they held fast to their confession without wavering. And we learn here that when it comes to the church, what matters most by, to our Lord is not its size, it's not its programs or its finances, it's not how many missionaries and missionary endeavors it supports. What matters to our Lord most of all is faithfulness. What matters to him is whether a church has kept his word and has not denied his name. And the church of Philadelphia was a case in point. Here was a church that was very weak. But what mattered to the Lord was that it was faithful. And for this, it was highly commended. What about you? Are you faithful? And is the church to which you belong faithful? Have you and your church kept his word? Have you not denied his name? This is what our Lord is looking for in every believer and in every church. Are these things true of you and of your church? Oh, how we need to pray that the church of Christ in our day would be faithful as the church in Philadelphia. Yes, this church was a faithful church. And because it was faithful, our Lord opened for them a door. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus in our text speaks of opening a door. Verse 8, see, he says, I have set before you an open door. Now the word see here, or we could translate behold, draws attention to something very important. Our Lord wants the church at Philadelphia to take notice that he has done something for them. He has opened a door for them, which only he can do because, as he says in the previous verse, he is the one who has the key of David. He is the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And so in this case, he has opened a door for the church at Philadelphia. Now, what is this door? Well, commentators you'll find will differ on this. Some say that this door refers to Christ himself, and there may be something to that. Because in John 10, verse 9, Jesus compares himself to a door when he says, I am the door. And he goes on to say, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Well, if that's so, then what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying that the believers at Philadelphia may have been shut out of the synagogue, but he opened another door for them, namely himself. He is the door through which they may be saved. But it's more likely that Jesus here is speaking of a door of opportunity, specifically an opportunity to share the gospel with others. In fact, this is how the symbol of an open door is often used in the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul. For example, when Paul and Barnabas returned from their missionary journey and reported to the church, they rejoiced because God, and I quote, had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Acts 14, verse 27. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes, For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. He's talking about an opportunity to share the gospel. And in Colossians 4 verse 3, the same Apostle enjoins the Colossians to pray that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Now this is probably the door to which our Lord was referring in our text. He's saying that in spite of their weakness and in spite of the opposition that they faced, he himself would open a door for them, an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to others around them, which is what they wanted. 
more than anything else. And what is more, Jesus said, once this door was open, no one would be able to shut it. It's like our Lord had his foot in the door. The only way this door could be closed was if he removed his foot, which he says he will never do. Now this is precisely what the members of the church at Philadelphia wanted and needed to hear. As new believers, they loved the Lord so much, and they were so thrilled with the gospel of Jesus Christ that they wanted nothing more than to share that gospel with others around them. They wanted nothing more than to others than for others to experience the same peace and joy and comfort as they themselves had experienced. But it was not easy. The opposition was great, especially from the Jewish community there. The opportunities were so few. And our Lord knew this, and he knew what a burden this was for the church at Philadelphia. And so he promised to give them an open door. And all this raises the question, doesn't it? What really matters to us? Is reaching out to others with the gospel the one thing that we desire to do most of all? Oh, I know it's not easy to do that. We feel awkward. We sometimes struggle with what to say. But, but dear friends, this is our task. Evangelism is not just the task of the minister. It's the task of every believer in Jesus Christ. Every believer is called to share the gospel with others around them. And why would they not? And you think of so many millions of people who are perishing every single day and ending up in eternity in hell. Does not our compassion for our fellow men lead us to want to share the gospel with others that they too may be saved like us? Oh, my friend, are you praying for open doors today? And when these doors do open to you, do you enter them boldly, looking to Christ for help and for strength? Well, as a reward for their faithfulness, Christ promised to give the church at Philadelphia an open door. But that's not all. He also promised to vindicate them before their opponents. And that brings us to our third point. After promising to give the believers at Philadelphia an open door, Jesus says in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Now Jesus here calls the local synagogue in Philadelphia a synagogue of Satan. In other words, this is a place where not God, but rather Satan is worshipped. What is more, he condemns the Jews who worship there as not Jews at all, but liars, hypocrites. Why? Because they failed to recognize that he was the promised Messiah. And they discouraged and even persecuted others from doing the same. And as such, they demonstrated that they were not Jews at all. They were not children of Abraham. Abraham was a man of faith. He looked forward to the coming of Christ. He rejoiced to see his day, but not the Jews of the first century. They despised him, and they rejected him and those who confessed him. Now, in making this statement, Paul was not denying their ethnicity. He knew full well that they were Jews. What he was denying was their covenant status. In Romans 2, verse 28 and 29, Paul defines a true Jew. He writes, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But here it comes, He is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, a true Jew is one who has been born again and has come to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and King. Now, the Jews in Philadelphia had not done this. In fact, they had persecuted those who did. And therefore, Jesus said they were not true Jews at all. And their synagogue was not a synagogue of God, but a synagogue of Satan. Strong language, but true. Now, concerning these Jews, Jesus says to the church, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Now, Jesus is not saying here that the Jews would worship the members of the church at Philadelphia. Of course not. What he's saying is that he would convert them. And as a mark of their conversion, they would come to the church in Philadelphia, convicted of their sins and of their unbelief, and they will literally fall on their feet before them and beg them to tell them what they had to do to be saved. And in so doing, Christ would fulfill the promise God made in several passages in the prophecy of Isaiah. In these passages, God predicted that one day the Gentiles would bow down and acknowledge the Jews as the covenant nation of God. Only now, it is the Jews who are bowing down to the Christians and acknowledging that they, not themselves, are the true covenant people of God. And in this way, he will vindicate his people. And Jesus says that the Jews will know that I have loved you. What wonderful words those are. Jesus loves his people. He loved them from all eternity. And he will love them to all eternity. And as a token of his love, he will one day vindicate them before his and their enemies. When will that happen? When he comes again on the clouds of glory. As long as we live on this earth, Christians will be despised and mocked and scorned and ridiculed. And it's happening even now. But when our Lord comes again, we shall be vindicated at last. And then every eye will behold him. The mouth of the unbelieving world will be stopped. And they will realize that they were right all along. And the whole world will know that Christ loved us from all eternity. And will love us to all eternity. Something tremendously satisfying about that, isn't there? This is why the martyrs under the altar cry, How long, O Lord? What are they waiting for? What are they longing for? What are they demanding? They tell us, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The martyrs are longing for justice and vindication. They're longing for the time when they will be proven right and their enemies wrong, which is only natural. And one day this prayer will be answered. And when it is, the people of God shall be satisfied. And so our Lord promises to vindicate his people. In the meantime, he promises some much needed encouragement. And that brings us to our fourth and final point. Our Lord ends his letter by making three precious promises to his people. The first comes in verse 10. He says, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The hour of trial or testing probably refers to the great tribulation that will precede the second coming of Christ rather than merely a local time of testing. 
And I say that only because it's said to come upon the whole world. When Jesus says he will keep his people from the hour of trial, he means he will sustain them through that hour. He will preserve them through that hour. Just as he sustained Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace and Daniel himself in the lion's den, so he will sustain his people in the hour of trial. He will comfort them, he will strengthen them, and he will bring them safely through. Secondly, he says in verse 12, He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now this obviously is figurative language. The word pillar symbolizes permanence and strength whereas the word temple symbolizes the presence of God. And so what Jesus is saying is that believers who overcome, in other words, believers who remain faithful and steadfast and who persevere to the end, they will never lose their salvation. Now that promise was especially meaningful to the believers in Philadelphia, and that's because this city was located on a dangerous fault line. Throughout its history, the city was rocked by several major earthquakes, causing much destruction and loss of life. In fact, the last earthquake to hit this city occurred in 17 AD, only about 70 years before this letter was written, which almost destroyed the entire city. But now our Lord comes to this people, these people living in this city, and he says, unlike the parts of the city in which you live, you will never be shaken, you will never be toppled, you will endure like a pillar in the temple of God. Thirdly, again, verse 12, he says, I will write on him the name of my God of the city of the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now to write one's name on someone is to give that person a mark of ownership. It's to say, you belong to me. So when Christ says, I will write on you the name of my God, he means I will make you my child. When he says, I will write on you the name of the city of my God, he means I will make you a citizen of my kingdom. And when he says, I will write on you my new name, he means I will grant you the privilege of partaking of my glory, which his new name symbolizes. Not long before John wrote this letter, as a way to honor the emperor Vespasian, Philadelphia had been renamed Flavia, which was the emperor's family name. And in contrast, Jesus says Christians are under the patronage of God himself. And he, they will bear the name of God, their Savior, and the name of the city in which they will dwell to all eternity. Oh, what a wonderful promise is that. Could anything be more wonderful? Dear friends, these are the promises that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the King of the church, makes to the faithful church at Philadelphia. And these are the promises that Christ makes to all faithful churches still today throughout the entire world. And so may God give us much grace that we, like the church at Philadelphia, may be faithful to him to the end and thus become partakers of these and all of his rich and wonderful promises. Amen. Dear friends, it's a great joy for us to be able to preach to you the word of God every Sunday on this station. And if you were blessed by the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Please take the time to write us a short note. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, 
V4X2M9. Or you can email us at banneroftruth at frcna.org. And when you write, please indicate the call letters of this station. If you take the, take the time to write to us, we'll gladly send you, free of charge, a wonderful booklet entitled Faith of Our Fathers. In this booklet, Pastor Neil Prunk, who was the former radio pastor of this program, explains the so-called doctrines of grace, otherwise known as the five points of Calvinism. And we hope that it may be a rich blessing to you. Please note that we do not send out CDs of our radio messages. However, you can access and download all of our messages at any time from our website. And our website is Banner of Truth Radio. That's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.